I'm going to do things uh, just a little bit differently this morning, and uh, I want to begin with a, a time of prayer, just to kind of follow along from where Ryan has just prayed. But would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, it is Christmas, it is upon us, and uh, it is uh, uh, both a, a wonderful time of year and the sense of being able to celebrate again the coming of our Savior into the world for our sake and for your glory, uh, but certainly also a time uh, of year where many are uh, grieving and are reminded uh, especially of the loss of dear ones. And so, Lord, would you grant uh, your comfort and even joy in the midst of sorrow, where there is sorrow. But, Lord, uh, be our teacher today. Um, Scripture presents to us uh, a way of life that is uh, against our natural kind of bent ways. And uh, it's not easy for us to bend according to your ways. We know we need your spirit and your word. And so give both to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in our Christmas story this morning, so let me ask you to turn again to Luke chapter 1. You'll find that on page 856 in the Bibles that we have for you in the pews. Um, If you've spent any time uh, with me or have listened to me at all, you'll probably know that I have, since I was a child, really liked movies, partly when I was a child because it was something we did as a family. But I think now one of the reasons I really like uh, movies is I like to look for redemptive moments, Uh, even in the most secular films. There oftentimes are these moments where just something happens that uh, is redemptive, where something is is about to turn around, something good is about to take place. Years ago, I think I was in high school, it's been a very, very long time ago, I watched the old movie... uh, Lord Jim with Peter O'Toole. There may be three or four of you in here old enough to remember Peter O'Toole, but I do. And uh, he plays this young sailor who becomes first mate of a ship. And on this voyage, it is a, it is a unique voyage. It is, uh, the, the ship is filled with men and women who are on a religious pilgrimage. So it's a very kind of special voyage. But disaster strikes one night. Uh, The hull is ruptured, water starts to seep in, and the ship starts to sink while all the passengers are asleep. And and so Jim has a decision to make because he knows that there aren't enough lifeboats to save all of the passengers and all of the crew. So what will he do? Well, he takes the cowardly way out. He joins the captain And the crew, who basically steal away quietly in the night, not waking up the passengers, taking the lifeboats to their own safety. A a day later, they're rescued, and they make up some story of needing to escape, uh, only to find out that the ship they had abandoned had been rescued along with all of the passengers. And so here's this redemptive moment in in the life of Jim. All of a sudden... The cowardice of his heart is exposed, uh, not just to the world, but to himself. I mean, up until this point, he thought of himself as a kind of brave, courageous, thoughtful, idealistic young man. But now he realizes something he couldn't see before in his own heart. And that is that he's a coward. And this redemptive moment affects the rest of his life and the way he will then live to kind of seek to make up for this moment. But here's the point that I want to make. 
It took a crisis in Jim's life for him to see what was really going on inside his heart. Now, I would imagine if we were to stop and just talk for a few minutes, a number of us could say it was a crisis or two or three or four in my life that revealed to me things in my heart I could not see before. Uh, That is true of us. And it's true even of the godly men and women that you see in Scripture. As we're looking at the Christmas story, Zechariah, who is to become the father of John the Baptist, had one of those crisis moments where he learned to see what was really going on in his heart. You may remember several weeks ago that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and said to him, you and Elizabeth, though you are past childbearing years, you're going to bear a child. And uh, Zechariah doesn't respond very well. In fact, he responds, even though he's a priest in the temple ministering, he responds in a way that uh, evidences the lack of faith in his own heart. This is what he says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And now, you know, we, we've talked about this before. Chris has talked about that in, in this series. I've talked about it. It's not just doubt. Doubt sometimes is okay and healthy and is a way for us to grow deeper in, in our faith. This isn't just doubt. This is kind of a stubborn refusal to believe what God is saying through the angel. And so what Zechariah basically does is say, look, we're too old for a child. Are you crazy? I mean, prove it. Show us a miracle. Give us a sign. And so the angel does. He shuts Zechariah's mouth. I mean, Zechariah cannot speak. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In other words, you are going to have a child and you're going to see it. But I want you to understand Zechariah here because... He's a lot more like us than we tend to think, even though he's a priest in the temple. He's really, at this moment, he's kind of uh, without excuse. I mean, he, he's a priest. He is someone who knew the Scriptures pretty well, which would have been the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And he knew there that, that God had intervened. God had done this kind of thing before. He had given children to parents who were past childbearing years. I mean, think of Isaac and Samson. Uh, think of Samuel. God could do this again if he's done it before. And so here's what this crisis reveals to Zechariah that is in his heart, that he could not see until this season of silence when he cannot speak. Zechariah had lost sight of the fact that life is not about what we are able to do, but what God is able to do in and through us. Uh, You know, if we live as though life is about what we are able to do, then when things go really well, even spiritually, who do we think deserves the glory? Well, we do. We we think we've done it. Uh, But God is very clear. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give no other. God created you for one main reason, and that is to display His glory. Uh, to display His grace and and, and His mercy. I I love the way one person put it, you were made to make much of God. You were made to make much of God. And and see, that's what you're going to see 
all the way through this passage that we're looking at this morning, no one is going to point to the goodness of themselves or their own abilities. Everyone, including Zechariah, who has learned his lesson, uh, is going to point to the goodness and the ability, the power of God. Everyone is going to make much of God, even Zechariah. I want to show you that as we walk through this passage. Rather, though, than read the entire passage, I want to break it up into pieces as we go through and kind of focus on some of the highlights and show you just how much uh, these folks make much of God and not themselves. It's It's a wonderful picture of them giving glory to the only one who deserves it. So let's start in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So, I mean, right away from the very beginning, uh, what does it say? Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. I mean, they knew uh, that Elizabeth could no longer bear a child. Humanly speaking, it was impossible because of her age. And, And so they don't come saying, aren't you amazing? Wow. 90 years old, and you are something, and gave birth to a child. No, they don't say that. They say, look what God has done. It's so obvious God has intervened in their lives. So they rejoice in the goodness of the God who displays his kindness and his mercy, even at times his miracles in and through our lives. Then verse 59, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now, uh, in other words, in obedience to Gabriel, at the Lord's instruction, who said, you know, he shall be named John, they are following through and and naming him John. And and here's the beauty of of this that we don't really tend to see in our day uh, because we don't make as much of names and the meaning of names as they did at that time. I mean, yes, we might do a little Google search and, and see what are we going to name our child and what does that mean. But back then, it meant so much. You, your name said a whole lot about you. And, and so John's name means this, the Lord has given grace. I mean, it's a wonderful picture of God stooping down and, and doing for Elizabeth and Zechariah and now John what they couldn't do for themselves. And so everywhere John went, he didn't have to say a word, but what his name said was this, Hi, my name is John. I'm here for one reason, God. I owe everything, including my life, to God. I don't deserve one good thing from God. I'm a sinner. But he has made me the forerunner of the Messiah. Isn't God great? That's what his name said. It's a beautiful picture of the grace and the mercy of God. His name makes much of the God who brought him into being in a miraculous way. Verse 61. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John and they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God I mean you know he has not been able to say one word since the angel shut his mouth but now all of a sudden His mouth is open, his tongue is loosed, and he doesn't say, look what I did. I opened my mouth all by myself and started speaking again. Now, 
He says, look what God has done. I mean, it's so obvious that God has done this thing I could not do for myself. Isn't God great? I mean, Zechariah has learned the hard way that life is not uh, about what we're able to do, but about what God is able to do in and through us. Our job is to point that out. Our job is to display the glory of God in and through our own lives by the way we live, by what we say by our reactions to the good circumstances and the poor circumstances of, of life. And then in, in Zechariah's prophecy, which we see beginning in verse 68, we see him doing exactly that. He displays the glory of the Lord as he speaks of the, the coming of salvation into the world with the coming of the Messiah. And like Mary's song before him, you have to read this, understanding is that, you know, now his faith is so strong again, if it ever was, it is really strong now. He is speaking of the future as though it is as good as done. He does really believe now that his faith in God has been renewed or perhaps given for the first time. We don't really know. Blessed, verse 68, be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, again, he's saying the salvation that we experience is not our own work. It is the, it is the power, the strength of God, and he pictures that in a, the horn. Think of the horn of an animal kind of tossing up in the air, demonstrating its strength and its power. And this is what then John is, is saying here. Zechariah is saying here in, in this prophecy, it, it is the strength of the Lord. I mean, picture a strong animal that brings about our salvation. It is not our strength. We, we don't bring anything to the table in terms of our salvation other than responding to the grace of God in our lives. Now, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Our salvation uh, is the result of God making a promise centuries before and keeping that promise. Uh, our, our salvation to a group of people who don't keep our promises is made by the God who always keeps his promises. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And so, uh, yes, God gives to us salvation to give to us a, a new kind of life where there is joy and health and righteousness and goodness and, and uh, all kinds of other blessings. But ultimately, the blessing is to God. Our salvation is a beautiful picture for all the world to see of the mercy of God. That is the way, or one of the ways, we bless our God by displaying in our salvation, in our lives, the mercy of God in us. Then skipping down to verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. He's speaking now about his son, John, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Uh, uh, again, our salvation is not something we deserve, not something we have earned. It is for one reason or for uh, one reason that God has come, and that is to display his own mercy. That is the ultimate reason, to display the tender mercy of our God. Uh, see, God created you and redeemed you for one main reason, and that is to display his mercy glory, to display His mercy, to display His grace. I mean, you were made to make much of God. 
That's what your life is about, to give glory to the one who would do such a thing for you. Now, let's kind of catch our breath and think about this for a moment and try to make it practical. Why is this so important for us to grasp? Well, I want to go back about 10 or 15 years to a time when there was a saying in many evangelical churches, including um, the PCA, and the saying was something like this, it's not about us, it's all about God. And now, to some degree, it's about us. I mean, what do we celebrate at Christmas? Christ coming into the world to rescue us out of compassion for us. At some level, it's about us, but ultimately, it is not about us. It is about Him. But here's the problem. We live in a culture that says every single day, it is all about you, what you deserve, what you need, what you want. And if you don't get what you want, then you should get angry because you deserve it. See, that's what we're bombarded with every day. And whether we think so or not, we've all at some level taken that in and made it our own, though we probably wouldn't say that about ourselves but at some level, it is true about us. Life is not ultimately about us. It is about God. Even the Scriptures are not ultimately about us. It is about God. Your salvation is not ultimately about you. It is, too, about God. I mean, God pursued you, not because He needed you, not because He was lonely, not because He thought there was something in your life that deserved His attention. He pursued us because He wanted to make us a trophy of His grace, a picture of His mercy to display the work of God in our lives and through our lives. My favorite picture of John the Baptist comes from a dear friend who preached a sermon years and years ago, I think when we were in seminary still. And uh, it was about John the Baptist. And he basically said, John the Baptist, he described his life as this, John the Baptist is a finger pointing to Christ. And I thought, that is it. I mean, that's who you are. That's who I am. Uh, we were created to be a finger to point to Christ, not as forerunners like John the Baptist, but in, in the way we live, in the way we think, in the way we feel, in what we do and say, uh, everything should be pointing to Christ in some way to give Him glory rather than pointing to us, trying to draw attention uh, to ourselves and our so-called goodness. You and I were made to make much of God. We just aren't the hero of our story. He is. Uh, we were redeemed to, to display His glory, and, and, and God pursued us. Uh, not so much to make much of us, but for us to be able to then make much of the one who would pursue us. And, and when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about your own salvation, I mean, what did you have to do with your salvation? I thought about this this past week, and as I was preparing for this morning, and I, and I went back and, and just had to think again, okay, uh, I didn't choose my grandfather, who got down on his knees every single day and prayed by name for every one of his children and grandchildren, including me. Uh, I didn't choose that grandfather to be my grandfather, the one who showed me what dependence on God looks like, it, it means to be on your knees. I didn't choose my grandmother, who taught me a love for Scripture and took me to a Billy Graham crusade many, many years ago. 
I didn't choose my parents who raised me with a respect for God and, and for His church. I didn't choose uh, the two young men who came knocking on my door the first week of college and led me to the Lord. I didn't choose any of that. Uh, nor did I choose God. I mean, He, he chose me. But I, I don't really see why, if I'm looking at this in terms of what is it in, in me that, that warrants His attention, it's just not there. I mean, there's nothing I can figure out other than He chose me to display His glory. I mean, when I look back at my life at the time I became a follower of Christ, I was a mediocre student. I played lots of sports, didn't really excel at any of them. Had good friends, but would never have considered myself one of the so-called popular students. I mean, I really don't have anything to boast about in terms of my salvation, but, but God, I, I really, really fit Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, I really mean this. I think probably more so than I ever have in the past. Why did God save me? So that he could show the world what he could do through what is weak and foolish. Uh, The older I get, uh, the more weak and foolish I realize that I am apart from Christ. God saved me to make much of him. I don't really have anything to boast about but him. If there's any good thing in my life at all, it is because of him and his kindness to me that I don't deserve in any way. But here's the problem. Here's what a crisis in my own life last week kind of revealed to me of my own heart. I still at times, and I would imagine this is true for everyone here, I still at times tend to think that it's all about me. Now, how did God reveal that to me? A little bit of conflict. And so I thought about that a good bit over this last week. And I love the way one person has put it. He said, almost all the conflict in your life, almost all the conflict in your life is predicated upon your belief that the world is about you. You know, the reason you get angry in traffic is because the world's about you. You know, get out of the left lane. I mean, how many times have I said that in the last few years? About 4,000 times, I think. The reason there's conflict in your marriage is because the the world's about you, so your spouse had better be doing these things for you. Uh, Why? Because the world's about you. The reason there's conflict at work is because the world's about you. How dare they say that to you? How dare they treat you in that way? How dare they not give you the honor or the respect that you're due? See, what's happening, it's about you. And the more the world is about you, the more angry and the more tired you will be. But here's the, the wonderful news. The more it's not about you and the more it becomes about Jesus, the more you begin to live with the understanding that it's not about your abilities but what God can do in and through you, the more you understand that it really is ultimately about Him and making Him look good or showing the goodness of God through the way uh, you live, the freer you become. I mean, the more you focus on Christ and making much of Him, the freer you become. You know, if, uh, 
ultimately, when I come home, my marriage is about Jesus, then there's grace there, there's forgiveness there, uh, there is patience, there's mercy. But if my marriage is not about Jesus, but about me, then there's expectation there. There are some things that, gosh, you better do for me. It's, if it's about me, then I'm starting really to focus on my own happiness, what, what I'm owed. But if it's about Jesus, then I'm free. If my money is about Jesus, then I'm free to do with it what most honors the Lord without having to worry about, will I have enough or not? If my pastorate is about Jesus, then, then I'm free. I want to give you a, a biblical example of this freedom. And it's one of the best examples I know. It's the Apostle Paul. I mean, I think of the Apostle Paul, his, his life, the, the more he grew in Christ, the more he recognized his own failures, and the more he focused on making much of God. I mean, his life became so much about making much of God that he found a freedom that most of us don't really have. I mean, you really couldn't touch him. He was kind of unfazable, if, if that is a word. Uh, here's a man who was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked three times, and he was tortured and left for dead on more than one occasion. That's what happened to him as a follower of Jesus Christ, but you really couldn't touch him. It didn't throw him. You know, we'll kill you. Well, to die is gain. We'll leave you alone then. Well, to live is Christ. It's all fine. I mean, we'll torture you. Well, I, I, I do not consider the sufferings of this world to be worth the glory of what is to come. Well, we'll put you in prison. Then give me a hymnal. I'll lead all your guards to Christ and sing God's praises. You were made to make much of Him. And when you begin to live that out, you can breathe, you can relax, you can find some real relief because you realize the world is not on your shoulder. Don't we say every Christmas, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, not yours, not mine. See, that's why you were created to display his glory. He is the only one whose shoulders are broad enough to deserve it. Would you pray with me? Father, it is so easy for us to live as though the world is all about us and uh, not about you. And yet if we could just stop to think and catch our breath for a moment and realize that there's nothing good we deserve, you just have granted to us so many good gifts. We certainly haven't done anything to warrant your attention. Uh, there's nothing humanly speaking about... Uh, us that led you to give to us your son it was your heart of compassion your desire to create beautiful trophies of grace all over the world and all throughout history who one day will really know what it's like to worship as we bow before you and sing your praises forevermore we pray these things in christ's name amen